the romance between Nick Blaine and June Osborne of the hit Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale is something of a controversial one. Osblains are often shamed or ridiculed for shipping what haters have deemed a toxic relationship. We know that's not true, and on this podcast, we will prove it. If you're a fan of The Handmaid's Tale who ships Nick and June, and you're tired of the undeserving criticism that endeavors to diminish this captivating love story, well, you're going to want to tune in to this podcast where we deep dive into the debate. Welcome to Nick and June After the Fact. I'm Wanda, your host, fellow Osblaine, and fierce defender of Nick Blaine. One of the hotbed topics that has polarized the fan base and constantly plagues Osblaine's on social media is the topic of trauma bonding. Without having a clear understanding of what a trauma bond is, fans who do not ship Nick and June suggest that they are indeed trauma bonded. But are their suggestions based on facts? Join me today as I dispel the rumors and present the facts of what a trauma bond is, what it isn't, and why it does not apply to Nick and June. In this episode of The Ties That Bind, The Truth About Trauma Bonding, Part 1. Thank you for joining me for Part 1 of The Ties That Bind. We have a lot in store for you in this episode, Along with our main topic, we'll have ATF Recommends, our Social Media Minute, and a random spotlight. But before we dive in, there is one housekeeping item that we need to address. Those of you who follow the podcast on Instagram or me personally on Tumblr were informed of our decision to move the podcast from a weekly schedule to a bi-weekly schedule. This decision was made in order to bring you thoroughly research-based information. We apologize to those of you who did not receive the notification and humbly ask for your forgiveness. There's a lot that goes into producing a podcast. It can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming. Although I enjoy the process, I do not enjoy the feeling of being overwhelmed. So thank you for your understanding, and we hope that you will continue to support the podcast. That's it for housekeeping today. ATF Recommends is next. Being able to see Max and Lizzie in anything during our off-season of The Handmaid's Tale helps take the edge off of having to wait for the new season to debut. So imagine my delight when I learned last year that Lizzie was working on a new project that will be coming out this year. One of the best loved psychological thrillers to hit bookstores in recent years has finally come to television. If you're into books like Behind Her Eyes and The Outsider, you've probably already heard of Shining Girls, the 2013 novel by Lauren Bierkus about a time-traveling serial killer and the victim who turns the tables on him. The book was adapted for television and it premiered on Apple Plus on April 29th. There are eight episodes, two of which Lizzie directed. It stars Elizabeth Moss, Wagner Mora, Jamie Bell, Philippa Soul, and guest stars Madeline Brewer. Let me just say, I had never seen Jamie Bell in anything other than The Shining Girls, and his performance blew me away. He kept me on the edge of my seat. Every time he was on the screen, I was on the edge of my seat. 
also Madeline Brewer, who guest stars, and who also is in The Handmaid's Tale, her performance as well was stellar. There was not one hint of Janine. Lizzie's production company, Love and Squalor Pictures, co-produced the project. So if you haven't seen it yet, ATF recommends Shining Girls, streaming now on Apple+. Plus. Our social media minute, up next. Bruce Miller and Hulu totally threw a monkey wrench right in the middle of our social media minute for this week, but we're going to present it anyways. On June 10th, Bruce was asked in a tweet from her real review if there was any word on when we would be getting the new season, to which he responded, I think there will be an announcement fairly soon. I'm sorry. I wish I knew. But seriously, it's not my lane. Then on June 13th, around 12.30 p.m., Hulu made an announcement. On September 14th, season five will premiere with two episodes, and an episode will follow each week thereafter. There are 10 episodes in this season. Lizzie directed the first two, which I'm very excited about because she has easily become one of my favorite directors. Also, she had an apprentice this season. Bradley Whitford, who plays Commander Lawrence, has been shadowing Lizzie, and he will be directing this season as well. I'm so excited to have finally gotten a date, and hopefully we'll get a trailer soon. Stay put. Random Spotlight is next. On May 27th, it was announced that Alexis Blydell, the actress who played Dr. Emily Malik for the past four seasons of The Handmaid's Tale, will be stepping away ahead of the fifth season. No further details were released. Obviously, this news was very upsetting to many fans of The Handmaid's Tale, me in particular, because Emily is one of my favorite handmaids, and I was looking forward to seeing how the dynamic between her and June would play out, especially after the season four finale. So in our random spotlight, I decided to highlight one of my favorite Emily moments. It was really hard to choose between the scene where Emily loses her shit to Annie Lennox's walking on broken glass in the season two finale and where she reclaims her shit in season one, episode five. Now, because I'm a positive person, I chose the latter. Because not only did Emily reclaim that part of herself that Gilead hadn't touched, her strong will to fight back, but her actions were the catalyst for June reclaiming a vital part of herself that Gilead hadn't touched, her desire to be loved. Emily's journey has been a real roller coaster through hell. She's gone through the horrors of child separation, watched her lover being executed before her very eyes, was surgically mutilated and discarded to work in unlivable conditions in the colonies. When we first meet Emily, she appears to be devout and compliant until she is revealed as a revolutionary. Soon we find out that she taught cellular biology and that she had a wife and son who made it out because they had Canadian passports. In season two, 
we learned that she was a professor whose career came under threat due to her living her truth as a lesbian. When her colleagues urged her to conceal her sexuality for the sake of her career, she outright refuses. It was in this flashback that we get a glimpse of the strong-willed, very rebellious Emily, a woman who refuses to live a lie. When she discovers her colleague hanging with a homophobic slur spray-painted on the ground below him, she attempts to escape with her wife and child from a now-forming Gilead. Because Gilead does not recognize same-sex marriages, she was forbidden to leave the country and watched her wife and child as they were permitted to leave. Because she had a functioning reproductive system, she was not killed like the other lesbians. She was allowed to live as a handmaid. But Emily continued to live her truth. She got involved with a Martha and became a member of the underground resistance movement in Gilead known as May Day. Her job was to gather information on the commanders. Shortly after revealing her true self to June, she is removed from her home and replaced by another Ofglin. We find out in season four that it was a former aunt who had reported her to the eyes. It was in episode five that we see Emily, who now appears to be a shell of her former self. Once again, she has lost everything that she had gained in Gilead. Her lover, and after May Day has cut her off because, sadly, she's now a liability, she lost her purpose. Episode 5 of Season 1 is one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. The episode is titled Faithful, but it is totally the opposite. There's a whole lot of rebellion going on, and if there's one thing that we've learned watching this show is that in Gilead, even the slightest bit of rebellion can get you killed. In the opening scene, we see June and Commander Waterford engaged in their 34th or 35th game of Scrabble. She's drinking alcohol, and he gives her a magazine as a gift. Then we see June and Luke's first encounter. She's aware that he's married, but starts hanging out with him anyway. Then Serena in pursuit of more power and higher status, orchestrates an illegal ceremony with Nick and June. Because why not? Serena's not the only wife who's rebelling, but Miss Scott decides that she's too sick to participate in Emily's ceremony schedules for that night, letting her off the hook. Not to mention the commander touching June during their ceremony and Nick revealing that he's an eye. This episode should have been entitled Unfaithful. The commander is being unfaithful to the laws of Gilead that he created. Serena and Grace are being unfaithful to one of Gilead's most sacred tenets. Luke is being unfaithful to his wife, and so on. But what I absolutely love the most about this episode is that although they knocked Emily down, they did not knock her out. When June sees Emily at the market, she lets her know that she knows what they did to her. She refers to her as Glen, and Emily responds, I'm not Glen," and then reclaims her name, a vital part of herself. That was just the beginning. When she notices a car unattended, instinctively she jumps behind the wheel, not so much trying to escape, but to reclaim something, that defiance, that strong will to fight back. Now what I've learned by watching this show and being a fan of Max Mangella's portrayal of Nick 
is to pay attention to the character's nuances. An expression, a look, and I noticed the look and the nod between Emily and June just before Emily ran over that guardian. It was the same thing that I noticed in season four's finale between the two women. One was using the energy given off by the other, and vice versa. They were clicking. Have you ever met someone for the first time and you just click? Emily and June were in complete sync with one another. I believe that Emily's actions were the catalyst for June reclaiming that part of her that Gilead hadn't gotten, her desire to be loved. The quote from the novel is as follows. I want to be held and told my name. I want to be valued in ways that I am not. I want to be more than valuable. Both Emily and June's willingness to rebel against Gilead, even if it meant that they would die, gave them the feeling of invincibility. It had nothing to do with anyone else. Not Luke telling her that she looked invincible. Not Serena wanting a baby. It was something intrinsic. I'm going to really miss Emily this season, this amazing actress who gave life to such an amazing character. Our main topic is next. In part one of The Ties That Bind, we will discuss what a trauma bond is and what it isn't. And the next time that we come together, in part two, we will discuss why it does not apply to Nick and June. Now, in my opinion, the phrase trauma bonding is one of those psychological concepts, such as attachment styles and gaslighting, that has made its way into public consciousness and has subsequently become misused through casual conversation, such is the case in this fan base. Now, forgive me in advance if I sound a bit agitated when dealing with this subject. This isn't necessarily a fun, lighthearted conversation to have, but in my opinion, it's a necessary one. Now, what is a trauma bond exactly? Before we get into that, let's look at what it is not. Trauma bonding is often misunderstood as a bond between two or more people who experience the same traumatic event. And as a survivor of trauma as a result of my military service, I can tell you emphatically that that is not what a trauma bond is. I share a traumatic event with many of my brothers and sisters in arms, but I am not trauma bonded with them. I just share an experience. That's the same thing with Nick and June. They have shared trauma. Now let's look at what a trauma bond is. Trauma bonding is a psychological response to abuse where the abused person forms an unhealthy bond with their abuser. There must be an abuser and abused person in order for there to be a trauma bond. Nick has never abused June, and June has never abused Nick. An example of trauma bonding is Stockholm Syndrome, is when a captive tends to form sympathy or affection for their abuser, 
which hinders them from seeing the severity of their situation. A prime example of someone with Stockholm Syndrome of Matthew. She agreed with what Gilead was doing to the women. She was one of the ones that drank the Kool-Aid. Now, June was one of the most rebellious handmaids to ever walk the streets of Gilead. There's no way she had Stockholm Syndrome. A trauma bond is an extremely unhealthy attachment formed between two people, and sometimes it could be more if a parent or guardian are involved. When one person is doing the abuse and one person is being abused. In other words, it's a vicious, confusing cycle to be in and can be destabilizing for the person who is being abused. These attachments cause a person who is being abused to distrust their own judgment, to distort their own reality so much they can place themselves at more risk. Trauma bonding victims feel so many layers of pain. Confusion and fear keep them frozen, while coercion, gaslighting, and deception undermine their self-worth. The toxic partner in the trauma bond usually has an undiagnosed mood disorder or personality disorder, such as narcissistic personality disorder, or an addiction. They are callous, manipulative, and abusive because of their makeup. Now, there are seven stages to trauma bonding, and we're going to go over each one of them. The first one is love bombing. And Hollywood has romanticized love bombing. There are a lot of movies out there, and you would not believe some of them that have love bombing in them. Now, love bombing does not always lead to a trauma bond, but it's one of the stages. And let's look at what a love bombing is. They shower you with excessive love, flattery, and gifts to gain your affection. Here's an example of love bombing Gilead style. The commander allowing June in his study, a place that his wife is forbidden to be. Everything in the commander's office is off limits to women. Books, art, music, sexual art, alcohol, and Scrabble. And what does he gift her when he returns from his trip? A magazine. All tools of manipulation. Number two is trust and dependency. They do everything to win your trust and make you depend on them heavily for love and validation. Number three, criticism. They gradually start criticizing, blaming, and demanding the cold and the hot cycle that they go through, that the abuser takes you through. They're warm sometimes loving, and then other times they're cold. The fourth stage is gaslighting. When things go wrong, they make it your fault, make you doubt your perception. What's happening to you is really not happening to you. It's all in your head, all in an effort to manipulate you into believing that their narrative is the truth. Number five is surrender. You no longer know what to believe. The only way to experience good emotions is by doing things their way. You have to walk on eggshells. 
Number six, loss of self. When you fight back, things get worse. You agree to settle for anything just to have some peace and make the fight stop. You lose all confidence and sense of self. And lastly, addiction. Your nervous system becomes accustomed to the intense highs and lows, creating a physical dependency. The cycle continues in a vicious loop, causing the development of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, if trauma bonding is at play and someone has bonded with their abuser, they will likely try to justify or defend the abuse. This could manifest in various ways, including trying to cover up for the abusive person, distancing themselves from people in their lives who are trying to help them, making excuses for their abuser as to why their abusive actions are valid, feeling reluctant to take steps that get them out of the relationship and situation, agreeing with the abusive person's reasoning for treating them poorly. This can sound like, they didn't mean to hurt me. They were just having a bad day. Or, it really is my fault. I made them angry. Or, they only respond like that because they love me so much. You wouldn't understand. And lastly, they're just very stressed right now. It will get better later. It's very important to note that even if someone is able to leave a relationship where there's trauma bonding, these feelings of protecting their abuser don't just go away. Likely, the person who was abused will still feel a powerful sense of loyalty to their abuser and feel tempted to return at times. This may be confusing for an outsider, but this is where it is essential to be empathetic and gentle. And this statement right here makes it evident that June was not trauma bonded to anyone. I mean, when she got out of the situation, when she got out of Gilead, we saw that she was still angry with Fred and Serena. Those were the people who were her abusers. Her anger was directed totally at them. She never made excuses for Serena or Fred. So there's no way June was trauma bonded to anybody. If someone has experienced trauma bonding in their relationship, it's likely that their trauma has begun to feel safe for them, even though it obviously isn't. Someone who has been abused starts to believe that this is what true love looks like. And healthy love can be overwhelming, off-putting, and scary. And this says a lot. People may get angry with me, but I think this says a lot about people's response to Nick and June because, you know, Osblane, we we see the love. I mean, we looked at love the last few episodes. We saw what true love looks like, and that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. So I totally get it. I mean, we look at the world based on how we've experienced it. So not everybody's going to get Nick and June's relationship. And that's something that I need to be aware of because it angers me sometimes that people just can't see it. And because they don't understand it, they want to reduce it to something that they can't understand. And people can understand trauma, unfortunately. Now, today we've explained what a trauma bond is 
and what it isn't. And we have gone over the seven stages of trauma bonding. That's all we have time for today. So join us next time when we explain why trauma bonding does not apply to Nick and June's relationship. And if you think you may be in a trauma bond relationship or any type of abusive relationship, reach out to us so we can direct you to some resources that could be of some help. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Join us next week when we tackle another subject related to our favorite couple. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to hit the notification icon so that you can be notified of a newly released episode. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram at Nick and June After the Fact. Today's inspirational quote comes from the amazingly talented Amanda Gorman, an American poet and activist who spoke in the 2021 inauguration of President Biden. For there is always light. If only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Until next time.